the scripture for this morning comes from Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 22. It's located on page 6 of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight of to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And then the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you will short, surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Thank you, Crystal. So the big question this month has been, why does Grace Meridian Hill exist? Uh, what's the mission of our church? And you'll find our answer to that question in our mission statement, which is printed for you in our bulletin on page 8 there in the sermon section. And if you've heard it in the last couple of weeks or if you see it now in front of you, maybe for the first time, you'll see that our mission statement reads as follows. Our mission is to build a gospel community that is intentionally spiritually diverse, cross-cultural, and neighborhood-centered for the good of our neighbors and the glory of Jesus Christ in Columbia Heights, Mount Pleasant, Adams, Morgan, and, and because of our move in November into the Petworth neighborhood just a few blocks north of here, just want to announce and let you know that our leadership recently enthusiastically decided to add Petworth also to our official geographical commitments as a ministry. After all, we have every intention always to be fully present where we are, especially when we are worshiping on Sundays in that particular neighborhood where many of our residents and members already live and where good ministry has already been happening. And so to read it one more time, our mission is to build a gospel community that's intentionally spiritually diverse, cross-cultural, neighborhood-centered, 
for the good of our neighbors and the glory of Jesus Christ in Columbia Heights, Mount Pleasant, Adams Morgan, Petworth, and beyond. And beyond. Well, each Sunday we've been taking a look at one key phrase in this statement, gospel community. What is that? Spiritually diverse community. What does that mean? Cross-cultural community. Each time we've looked at their biblical foundations as well as practical implications. What does that look like in real ministry terms? What does that look like in our community? Well, today we're finishing up this sermon series with one last look at one last phrase, neighborhood-centered community. We are here at Grace Meridian Hill a self-consciously neighborhood church. What does that mean? Well, let's take a look, but first, let's pray. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Jesus, you're already here, but we invite you all over again to be present through your word. Please come, speak to our hearts. Please come and use your eternal word communicated through my frail and even broken words to knit our hearts together with a common vision that comes from Scripture. Uh, to help us to hear from you, that we would hear the very voice of God in our hearts by faith. We pray that you would change us, that you would even change our church, that you would use this time maybe to redirect our hearts and even our plans as we seek to follow you as a church on mission. So do your will in this time, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Alan Durning was a world-traveling researcher for a global institute that was based here in Washington, D.C. In his book, This Place on Earth, he describes a time when he was in the Philippines on a work trip, meeting with members of remote hill tribes and interviewing them about their livelihood and about their land. During that time, one of the chiefs showed Durning the trees and the streams and the farms that the tribe had taken care of for centuries. And he explained that they would indeed defend that territory if needed, even with their very own lives. So great was their commitment and investment in that land. And at one point, a frail old woman, apparently a, a priestess of the tribe, asked Durning through an interpreter, what is your homeland like? He found her question to be a bit embarrassing. He was based out of DC, as we are, where he lived with his wife and two children, but he had no roots there because of his frequent travels. The old woman repeated the question again, thinking that he hadn't really heard her or understood her the first time. Tell me about your place. Again, I could not answer Durning writes in his book. The truth was, I lacked any connection to my base in Washington. In America, I finally admitted, we have careers, not places. Looking up, I recognized pity in her eyes. 
In America, we have careers, not places. And there's a Christian version of this too, isn't there? Lauren Wilkinson, who's a professor at Regent College in Vancouver, reminds us that Christians for a long time have suffered from, quote, a similar sickness. Although we would use different words, he explains, in Christianity, we might say, we have callings, not places. And usually in those callings or vocations, we regard place as irrelevant. By definition, callings call us somewhere else. So rootedness, he writes, is not a widely practiced Christian virtue. Pilgrimage is an important part of the Christian life, but it was not what we were made for. We were made to make a particular corner of creation our home. We were made for a place. For many of us, these sound like strange ideas or maybe abstract ideas. What do they mean? This language of being made for a place and being made to make a particular corner of creation our home. But these friends are biblical ideas. They come from places like the creation count before us in Genesis 2, the passage that we're studying this morning. They also make up the vocabulary of our church's mission, our neighborhood mission. Grace Meridian Hill is a neighborhood-centered church, and that means at least two things. That we're a community with a commitment to a particular people, and that we're, secondly, a community with a commitment to a particular place. A commitment to a particular people and a commitment to a particular place, and both of these commitments are grounded in the story of Genesis 2. You see, one of the main lessons of Genesis 2 is that we were made for relationships. First and foremost, a relationship with the God who made us, the God who deserves our worship, our love, and our praise, but also a relationship with other people. It is not good for the man to be alone, God said in verse 18. And so in the verses that follow, verse 18 and 19 and following, we find God making the man a complementary partner, a woman. And this describes the institution of marriage when marriage first showed up on the human scene. But the teaching also teaches us more than just about marriage. It's teaching us about the importance of connection and community. See, we need each other. We were built for relationships. And in fact, we could take it one step further, that we have no meaning as human beings apart from friend and neighbor. And so Jesus was really only echoing this vision of humanity found in Genesis 2 when he taught later on that all the law and the prophets, everything that God demands of us and expects of us, can be summarized in two commands. Love God with everything that you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. 
Loving your neighbor is an essential part of being truly human, of fulfilling what you were, in fact, made by God for. Christians are familiar with this call to love neighbor, but sometimes one of the hardest things to do is to answer that call in its most literal sense. To befriend and to serve those to your immediate left and to your immediate right. We want to take this call, this command, literally here in this community. To love our literal neighbors here in this neighborhood. We want to be a community that's committed to a particular people. Committed to our neighbor, who, if you look at that word, really constitutes people who are nigh, who are nearby. And that, of course, includes loving whoever is around us, loving all of our neighbors, including those who are economically stable, even those who might at least appear to be flourishing. We'll love and serve and build friendships of reciprocity and mutuality with those immediately around us on our blocks and our street corners, whoever they are. And we need to keep this in mind. We need to keep in mind that God calls us to move into the lives of everyone, regardless of their current condition, because those who are outwardly comfortable, or even those who seemingly have it all together, sometimes are the ones that are most lonely, are sometimes the ones who are most anxious, despite the evidence on the outside, what they seem to be, that in fact they are among the most depressed, most directionless, sometimes most spiritually lost. And maybe that's what brought you here today, dear friend, dear neighbor. Because you know there's a big gap between the life that you live and the way that you present on the outside and the deep lack, even void, that you know you have on the inside. We must love all of our neighbors, but we must remember, especially as God calls us to, those who are most vulnerable, materially vulnerable, physically vulnerable, those who are struggling financially, who don't have the safety nets that many of us might presume, who might be struggling in the way that they are raising their growing kids and who need support and help, who might be struggling to find or to keep work, to pay bills, to make basic ends meet in their lives and in their homes. These are especially the dear neighbors amongst us whom God calls us to love and befriend. And by befriend, I do mean that in a bi-directional sort of way, that we are offering friendship, but also, dearly beloved, that we are receiving friendship as genuine neighbors who are giving and receiving one with the other. I recently preached on the theme of God's justice, his unique heart 
for the poor, the fatherless, the widow, and the foreigners. I won't expand on that too much at this time. You can go back and listen to those sermons. But I do want to point out that our church's commitment is to especially seek out and to love and to be loved by such neighbors. And maybe even looking at this passage, someone says, well, it, this passage doesn't seem to talk about poverty or vulnerability. But in fact, it does indirectly. See, because in talking so richly about relationship and our need not to be alone, but to be in rich, rich community. In fact, as a reminder to us, as many good teachers have reminded us, that at the heart of struggles even with poverty and certain forms of vulnerability is not just a struggle with material possessions, not having enough stuff, what you might call a material view or an overly material view of poverty, but rather at the heart of these struggles is really isolation. It, it's a lack of relationship. It's a brokenness of networks with people that otherwise might be able to support and fill in, offer a loan, give emotional support. So many of our struggles that seem only like outward, even monetary struggles at the core of it all are relational struggles, a lack of community, even family. And this is what, the, what God calls the church to provide. Surely to provide resources, physical, material, and otherwise. But most of all, to give the very kind of family support, support as a surrogate spiritual family to help those who otherwise are trying to make it on their own. And so how do we do this as a church committed to a particular people, to our neighbors? Well, of course, it involves getting involved in different ministries that we have, like DC 127, a ministry in which you can serve families that are nearing a point of crisis in a short-term capacity to take kids in and to help mom or dad or someone who are trying to get this particular area of life more stabilized. Ways that you can tutor or mentor young people in the neighborhood, different ways in which we long to plug people in into our neighbors' lives through the ministry of the church where we want to say, if you're part of Grace Meridian Hill, you're part of our neighbors' lives. If you're part of our church, you're part of this neighborhood. And so we engage, employing with our, our regular community vocabulary words like serving, helping, hospitality, loving, and other words that might come to your mind. But here's one word that I want to offer to you as maybe being the most important key of all in this kind of neighbor loving and serving ministry, and it's this, presence. Being present. Even before you do anything, even before you say anything to a neighbor whom you are be-neighboring, that we might be a people committed to simply being here. Showing up. Being on your block. Lingering a little bit. Looking with your eyes. To see people in their eyes. To notice their gardens. 
to notice their tears, to look and to listen and to learn that we might grow in wisdom even to know how to love and serve, to slow down in our lives enough for unplanned encounters with our neighbors. Recently, Paula and I were, together with our kids, were privileged to be a part of a neighborhood block party, just the block right in front of us on which we live, where a bunch of the longtime neighbors in our community planned something that's been going on for a couple of years, a time for kids to go out and play, shut down the street, bring out the games, serve food to one another, and really, most of all, just to chit-chat, get to know each other. And it's amazing. It's not a big block. Amazing how many months, even years, can pass by and you live literally 50, 100, 10 feet away from one another, and yet you've never really had an extended conversation. It was a valuable time, an invaluable time. But even yesterday, Paula and I were talking about how important it would be for us to try to build upon that, to now having gotten to know a few additional neighbors to the point of now maybe knowing their name or at least having some familiarity to continue the conversation, as it were, to intentionally make sure that we're outside, especially with the days getting shorter and the temperature getting colder. The days are few before we're all hiding on the indoors. What would it look like for us to intentionally spend more time in front of our home, uh, to, to linger around, to, to even take a walk that has really no purpose except just to bump into people, accidentally yet intentionally? Because you're laboring to be what in this modern age is sometimes the hardest thing to be, and that is simply this, fully, fully present. In this digital age, more than ever, one of the most radical, prophetic, counter-cultural things that you could possibly do is to just be somewhere and to stay somewhere where you can cultivate long and thick relationships with other people. One of the most lasting things that you can do is to be physically present, not just in virtual relationships, but in embodied relationships on your block, in a neighborhood. And let's be honest, we don't want to do it. We make a lot of excuses. We tell ourselves that we're busy. We're always on our way somewhere. But it's not our schedule, is it, friends? That's not the reason that we're not present. It's not the busyness of our lives. It's not the urgency of the needs that we are chasing, though they might be real and urgent. Let's be honest, it's because we're all about me. We are sinful people, selfish people. And even this passage reminds us of that as we hear these references and allusions to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this wonderful tree that God placed in the garden really to train the hearts of Adam and Eve as they would pass by where they're called to obey God and to trust in him. And yet we know in the next chapter of Genesis they failed in that trust. 
They wanted to be their own maker, their own lord, their own king. They wanted to do things their own way. They wanted to be God. They wanted to live for themselves. It was selfishness that entered into the human heart, into our human existence. It's selfishness that kills our momentary zeal to be a better neighbor. And so what hope do we have but the true neighbor? An encounter with Jesus who changes our hearts from the inside out and makes us better neighbors by giving us himself as the true neighbor. You see, because sin and selfishness has made us treat God like a stranger. God, I don't know you, and I'm not sure I want to know you. God, I don't want to serve you, and I'm not sure I want to serve you. Close the shutters, lock the door of our hearts and even our homes. We treat God like a stranger indeed. If we're honest, we treat him like an enemy. And here's God himself taking the initiative to move into the neighborhood. Enter Jesus, the one who took on human flesh, who crossed from heaven to earth to enter into our human existence, to come near, to come nigh, to be our neighbor, to love us despite our resistance. We didn't want him, you see. We didn't think we needed him, you see. We didn't need that neighbor. We ran the other way. And yet here's Jesus serving, loving, not just bringing over a plate of cookies, or the use of a lawnmower or a power tool, not just giving over his heart, his emotions and his empathy, his ears and his eyes, indeed giving his entire life, giving up everything that he had for us in suffering and death, taking all the punishment that we justly deserve for being the cruddy neighbors that we are. And the even cruddier neighbors that we selfishly really, really long to be. Willfully committed against true neighboring that we really are. If we dare to be honest with ourselves. This Jesus who died for us, for our forgiveness, for our life. Sheerly by grace alone as a gift to us. Who brought us not just as a stranger and even not just as a neighbor into his family. But as an adopted child giving us the prize seat at his table. This Jesus who has loved us so, the true neighbor. Do you know him? Have you encountered him? Have you been neighbored by him in what the Bible calls the gospel? I'll tell you this, because if you have, if you've been loved by the neighbor of all neighbors, you begin to be a better neighbor. You begin to love like him. You begin to lay down your life like him. You begin to pay attention to others like him. You begin to listen like he's listened to you. You begin to be present like he has been and always will be present to you. This is the neighborly love of Jesus that he calls you today to receive afresh, maybe for the first time. But as he changes your heart to also to love as we grow together as a community that's committed to a particular people, our neighbors.
But we also want to be, secondly, a community that's committed to a particular place. That is our neighborhood. A neighborhood which is simply a dwelling place that's shared by neighbors. You know, it's so obvious that it's often overlooked. God didn't, in this passage, create humanity in a vacuum or literally in the air or in the middle of nowhere. God made us somewhere. We're told in verse 8, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, a place with a name, and there he put the man he had formed. And again in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. In other words, when God created the human race, he placed us in a specific place. And it had a name, the Garden of Eden. He placed us in a specific place and never since have we escaped from being somewhere. Listen how even verses 10 through 14 takes this unusual amount of time to detail out this garden in great geographical and even topographical detail. We're told about this. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. There it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. The fourth river is the Euphrates. What a waste of time! Unless place matters to God. We were made to live with an intimate relationship Yes, with people and neighbors, we get that. That's fairly intuitive to most of us, and we just spoke about that. But do you know, we were also made, created, designed to live with an intimate relationship with an identifiable physical space. Again, as Professor Wilkinson put it, we were made to make a particular corner of creation our home. I mean, it's interesting, in the verse just prior to our passage, in verse 7, we're told that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. We were grounded, literally. We were made with an intimate connection to the earth. Friends, we were made to be rooted, to be located in a place, in a city, in a neighborhood, in a home, on a block, in a community. And of course, this passage tells us that the reason why places matter is because God is present in them. In fact, this is one of the main messages of this creation account. It's all about the immanence of God. That's a big word that means the nearness of God. God is near. God is invested in all the details of all the physical things, even the mundane things in life. You know, the things that you walk by all the time, the things that make up the stuff of a neighborhood. As one commentator put it, 
that this sense of God's loving, active presence pervaded all of life. So all of life was sacred. And to participate in the ordinary things of life in a neighborhood was to grow closer to God. And so here, God is present in places with names like Eden, like Washington, D.C., neighborhoods like Columbia Heights, Petworth. God, we're told, is present in the trees and sidewalks and in the alleys and in the hills, including Meridian Hill, and playgrounds and stores and homes. God is present in rivers like the Gihon River and the Euphrates River and the Anacostia River and Rock Creek. God is present in this place, and so he calls us to be attentive to our place, even our neighborhood. The church used to describe this commitment. It's been lost over the generations. But the church used to call this commitment the commitment of parish. Parish, that's an old word. It actually comes from the ancient Greek word paroikia, which means living near or beside others. See, parish was a space with geographical boundaries, sort of like a neighborhood where a church served its local community. But it wasn't just a plot of land. It was a disposition of heart. It, it was actually a spiritual practice of organizing the life of a church around a geographical place where the people and the pastor together were intimately connected in the life of the neighborhood, even interwoven into the very fabric of the neighborhood. The parish, in fact, was an invitation. It was a call to dwell in a neighborhood and to invest in a neighborhood in such a way that the concerns of the neighborhood would become your own, both you as a resident as well as you as a church community. As you are called together, as we are called to do what God calls these first neighbors in Eden, and that is to cultivate that place. Why were we put there? What are we called to do with that place? Verse 15 tells us, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. Why? to work it and take care of it. And from this verse, we could, as we should, develop a theology of work, the sacred valley of all that we do from nine to five, and that's another sermon, another theme to build on. What I want to point out here is that the word translated work, to work it, also means to keep, to protect, to preserve, to watch, to guard. See, God is calling us to use our gifts and our love to cultivate this place as stewards that are given a trust. To cultivate the neighborhood, to make it a little bit more of what God intended life and community to be. In the way that people relate to another. In the way that money and resources flow justly towards all in the way that institutions and stores and government 
tools and community resources might actually reflect a little bit of the life of God and the justice of God, the shalom of God, and the resurrection of Christ. God has called us to be cultivators of the neighborhood, and yet our natural disposition is to come in, whether here or anywhere, with the heart of a consumer. Right? I mean, let's be honest. Most of us don't really think in the way that the Bible is teaching us to think. It's a humbling thing. I'm right there with you. Most of us move into a place or live in a place basically asking the question, what's in it for me? And we pick places to live based upon its affordability, which is a good thing to consider, but also its proximity to amenities, things that make life a little bit more comfortable, maybe a little bit more fun. Maybe we consider the length of time to our, uh, for our commute to work or to other places we want to go. Again, all of these things are perfectly good things to consider. But is it the only thing that we consider? Have we actually entered into our place, our neighborhood, this city, or to wherever God calls you with a consumer heart? Do you know, dear friends, that the gospel, the neighboring love of Jesus, changes our heart even on this front, turning us from consumers of a neighborhood into cultivators of a neighborhood, turning us from being selfish neighbors to being servants of the neighborhood. And this is a real challenge because there's little, if we're honest, there's little in modern society and frankly even the modern church that supports this commitment. We, we actually have in our modern time experienced the loss of a sense of place and a commitment to place. We have become a placeless people. The excerpt that I read earlier referred to the way in which career often wars against our rootedness in place. The way in which our jobs so often, especially in the professional sectors of our city and our society, make it such that the default in American life is to prioritize career over community and place. Where we so easily and even mindlessly at times move from one place to another to another to another or from one neighborhood to another or one home to another without any regard for people and relationships and rootedness at all, and we wonder why we're so lonely. And we're wondering why we feel so disconnected, ungrounded. What, dear friends, would it look like from time to time to prioritize community over career, to prioritize our rootedness in place? But it's not only career that makes this difficult, it's also technology, isn't it? The way in which we now communicate with one another, especially the advent of social media, which I'm not condemning here, obviously, but the way in which it has led us to sort of redefine community as virtual relationships, people I sort of talk to, and never mind how superficial that communication might be, but as long as we're in touch, as long as we say we're friends or we sort of like each other from time to time, and not even each other, just the things we say or the things we complain about, 
We'll call you a friend, a virtual friend. But it's disembodied relationship, isn't it? We've normalized this. We've almost forgotten how valuable, how irreplaceable it is to have a face-to-face -face friend. Someone that can give you a hug and wipe your tears when you need it. Someone who can throw their heads back and laugh with you, which makes all the difference because you know being a human being means that laughter is contagious and fills your heart with joy. We've forgotten what it means and how valuable it is to live in embodied relationship with one another. Modern communication has made it difficult for us to remember this. So has transportation. The way in which we've just normalized zipping by places, zipping through places, without any regard to true local life, what is actually going on, on that block, in that planter, in that home, in that store, in that construction site. Again, we've trained our eyes and even our hearts not to pay attention. And the church has even encouraged this, the way that churches in the modern age have built themselves around commuter models, almost daring you, inviting you, celebrating you, taking long, long distance trips to worship in a place that is really alien to your own. And please be crystal clear with me on this. I am not condemning any church model whatsoever. Each of these are morally neutral before God. They simply have different strengths and weaknesses. But technology has made us blind to the value and importance of place, and sometimes so has our theology. And without getting too much into it this morning, certainly there's a lot of theology out there, I would say errant theology, that teaches that the created world doesn't matter, that the physical stuff of this earth is of lesser importance than the quote-unquote spiritual things of life, and it's simply not true. Genesis 2 tells us it's not true. God inhabits it all. God redeems it all. God will glorify it all for all of eternity in the new heavens and the new earth, including buildings and trees and sidewalks and homes and physical bodies like yours and mine. How do we know? Because Jesus is raised from the dead even now. In a perfected and eternal physical body, there's no greater affirmation of the value of our physical world, even our neighborhood, than him. And so will we then be a church that pays attention to the store that closes and the new store that opens up? Will we be a church and a people that will be wise to the economic dynamics in our local community? to the changing demographics, who learn in intimate detail what is going on at street level, all that is happening in the local community, where we might be a church that is deeply and truly in the neighborhood, which means not only just being physically located here, but also emotionally and relationally present as neighbors. Where being in the neighborhood means devoting our time and our energy, our talents, our finances, our hearts, even our prayers to this particular context, these schools nearby, these neighborhoods, these needs. 
And not only corporately as a church, but even individually as residents, you see, because we're doing this together as a church, but this absolutely is for our discipleship as individuals, as neighbors, before friends, neighbor, and even God himself. Where we're a church not only in the neighborhood, but also of the neighborhood, which means belonging to the neighborhood. Taking personal ownership of its needs. When something happens down the street from us, do we feel it? Do we use the right kind of pronouns? Not them, but us. Not their, but our. Where we belong to them and they belong to us. Where we bear the burdens of our neighbors and our neighborhood alongside one another as partners. And as we strive over time to become more and more a reflection of the mix of neighbors that we have here in this neighborhood. Where we're in the neighborhood, we're of the neighborhood, and where we're for the neighborhood, meaning laboring sacrificially with deeds of compassion and deeds of justice for the well-being of all of our neighbors, and especially the poor, whether or not they agree with all of our beliefs. Where we are laboring sacrificially with our words, with our eyes, with our ears, with our deeds, with our presence. Humbly offer ourselves as neighbors, even as God in Christ renews us in our own relationship with the true neighbor, even Christ. Genesis 2 reminds us, of course, that all of this is for God. God is at the center of it all. God is the one that receives the glory for communities that reflect his intended design and so we labor not just for our neighbor's good as we say in our mission statement but also for the glory of Jesus Christ have you been loved by God and Christ have you received the grace and the love and the attentiveness of the true neighbor Jesus have you because if so then it all boils down to this, having received that love, having received that be neighboring, who are you going to love? Who are you going to love? And where are you going to love? Will it be neighbor? And will it be a neighborhood? God, give us grace that it might be so. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would make these things a reality, that you would give us hope and strength and humility to follow in your steps, to receive you, and to love like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's pray. All right, let's sing.